what's up everybody this is Valentina Brega welcome to another episode of the show built with VAs and my guest today is Mike Simmons who is an amazing entrepreneur coach author and so much more to this and I can't wait to find out more about his entrepreneurial journey the way he is sharing his values and bringing his values into the company there's so much more we can learn about him and his business today and I can't wait to dig right into that Hey Mike, how's it going? Going great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is uh, this is going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about who Mike Simmons is. Well, I'm born and raised in Michigan, so Midwest kid. I always tell people I was kind of an average student grade-wise. I played sports. I was, you know, average, you know, second string kind of a level athlete, right? But I played a lot of sports growing up. It was important to my family. So nothing special. I went in, you know, when I when I was a kid, as I was an adult as well, my parents worked in the automotive industry, my dad. My mom cut hair. And so, you know, very blue collar. My dad was in the union and he wanted me to be in a union company. And, you know, his idea for me was once you graduate high school, go to college or not. He didn't care, right? Where a lot of parents are like, you have to go to college. He's like, I don't really care if you go to college. I care that you get into a company that is union and you have benefits and, and protection and all this stuff. And so, you know, I graduated high school. I didn't go to college. I mean, I started to go to college and then quit because I really hated it. And I got into a, a union company and everything was great. <clears throat> it was UPS, a great company. And uh, as a young man, like in my early 20s, I hurt my back working there because I was lifting improperly, but I was lifting a lot of things all day long. I was loading trucks. And uh, at 24, I couldn't get out of bed without going to the chiropractor three or four times a week. Like I would just be, you know, I was like somebody who, you know, played, ath- you know, was a professional athlete for years. And then when they, you know, when they get in their 40s and 50s, they're, they're tight and their joints hurt. And they're, I was like beat up at 20. So I had to leave that company. And I started working in the automotive industry after that. Worked there for about 20 years, worked my way up. I eventually actually went back to college, got my degree finally, because I, as an adult with kids and a wife and things, I realized I kind of need a degree if I want to really excel. And so I went back and did that at night and on weekends. And I was in this industry and in this career, and I knew what jobs I wanted. At the at the company I worked at, I'm like, I want his job. And I would watch that person over the years and they worked all hours, like they worked crazy hours. They hated their family. They hated their job. You know, they they just were miserable people. They were not happy. These people that I were looking at for their job. And I just started thinking, wow, if, if they're this unhappy, why do I want that job? It seems horrible. Like they're always upset. They're always in trouble with somebody. Like it just seemed really, really stressful. And so I really started looking at what could I do? I got my degree and I'm in the industry I wanted to be in, but I don't know that I, I think I might've made a mistake. I don't know if this is the right industry for me. And so I started looking outside for ways to invest. And I started looking at stocks and the stock market and trying to learn about the stock market and how to invest. And it was so boring. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't stay awake watching it. I was just bored. But as I was like studying and going, Googling how to invest, I eventually hit real estate. And I was interested in it. I, I loved reading the success stories about what people were doing and all the houses they were flipping and all this stuff. And this was back in like, I don't know, 2003 or four, kind of before the house flipping shows were on. But I just loved all that. And I was in corporate America making pretty good money. So I wasn't hurting financially. And I really want to do this real estate thing. But I did what a lot of people do. I made a mistake that's very common and some people never recover. And that's, I got into this paralysis analysis where I started reading and going to, you know, meet ups and listening to, there were no podcasts, but people used to back in the early 2000s, used to upload audio to a website and then you could listen to it on their website. And I used to listen to this audio about people talking about real estate. And I spent five years procrastinating, basically listening and reading and learning. And I never got out of that learning phase for five years. I just kept telling myself I was being cough cautious and I was being responsible by not doing something before I understand it. But I know you know this, Val. You've been in the industry and around people long enough in this industry to know a lot of people use learning as a crutch for not doing. They'll just mm-hmm. keep going to an, another seminar or reading another book, and they're just avoiding actually doing the thing that is maybe a little scary. And I did that for five years until I finally had enough, went out and bought my first house, my wife and I, and flipped it. And a lot of things went wrong. I made a ton of mistakes. I mean, we could get into the details of what I did wrong if it's an interesting, but just I made a lot of mistakes with that first one. Everyone does. But I still made $15,000 on a house that cost $40,000. So that's, you know, it was a real success for me and my wife who grew up really poor it was just a lot of money 
And we were like, okay, I think we can do this. And we kind of went from there, but I'm not afraid of risk. Okay. I'm not risk averse. I'm okay with risk. My wife is not. And so when we were doing this in the beginning, I wanted to buy more and more houses faster and faster. And she wanted to slow down. Let's finish this one. And what was great about that is it kept me from probably making a lot of mistakes of fast, bad mistakes that were going to cost me a lot of money. She slowed me down. And as much as I didn't like it, now looking back, I realized if nobody had controlled me at all back then, I would have probably made a lot of financial mistakes. I would have lost a lot of money. It could have been really, really bad. But she kind of helped me to get past their learning period a little bit more cautiously, a little bit more responsibly. And then at some point, she just took herself out of the business. It wasn't really something she loved. She was doing it. She was helping me for sure, but she didn't love it. She was a school teacher back then, and it was starting to interrupt her day a little bit. It was starting to affect her moods during the day, and she wasn't sleeping as good. And, you know, it could be stressful. Me, on the other hand, I love it. I live for that stuff. And so she backed out. And when she backed out, I did go faster. I started buying more and doing more faster and faster, but I had already gone through the learning curve. So that kind of takes you up to the start of my business and how I started and why I started. How did you find your first house? Back then, back in 2008, which is when I bought my first one, end of two, or mid-2008, house price, the, the industry was crashing, right? The market mm. was crashing. And so there were just tons of people putting their house for sale because they were losing value every single day. And back then, you could get on the MLS and buy a house that would totally flip and make total sense. So I used the MLS to buy houses until I did it from 2008 to 2014. I just MLS. I, I didn't know about direct mail or marketing directly to seller. I didn't even understand that people did that. So I bought everything off the MLS and it started affecting my business into like 2013 and 14. It was getting harder to find houses on the MLS. And so, you know, some things happened right then too that changed my entire business. But that's how I started flipping houses off the MLS. Right. Because I was going to ask the same thing. At the beginning, you may not have known about direct mail or cold calling or, or, or texting or you just happened no. to have this uh, property. That's a very good start. And um, it just shows that if you put your mind to it, you will find a property. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, they create a lot of friction in their mind because they're so overwhelmed with the multitude of marketing channels they have. Probably back then it was easier for you because they say, well, I heard direct marketing works. I heard cold calling works. I heard this works. I hear this works. So I don't know which channel to pick. So that's going to create even more friction and it's going to stop me from going after this. Do you, yeah. do you think you had an advantage by back then by just keeping it simpler? Yeah, I didn't know anything, so it was easy for me to only pick MLS because that's all I knew. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, it all works. All, all of the things you mentioned work, right? It just really, sometimes it boils down to how much money do you have available for marketing? How much time do you have available? And then you sort of take maybe those two factors specifically, and then you pick the marketing strategy that fits your scenario, right? MLS is great. It's hard to find, you can't find deals on the MLS quite like you could back in 2008, nine and 10. Mm -hmm. Like it was just, crazy. I could buy five houses a day if I wanted to and still leave some that I didn't buy. It's not like that now, but there's always a way there's deals out there. You know, people are talking about the interest rates are up and prices are, it is kind of a perfect storm. If you look at it on paper, the interest rates being really high and the market value of homes still being pretty high would make a reasonable person, if they're only using that data, say there are going to be no deals available. Nobody's buying because the interest rates are so high and prices are so high, right? It's just not true. I'm still buying as many houses as I ever bought because here's what happens all the time, right? This happens in every market. It happens in an up market, a down market, and a market that's staying stagnant. People have, you know, death, divorce, job loss, job transfer, downsizing, all these things, delinquent taxes, like all these things happen. And that's why we as investors are able to buy houses. We don't buy houses from people who just kind of want to sell because maybe they want to upgrade, but they don't have to. They love their house. They could stay here forever, but maybe like we never buy from those people because first of all, they're probably never going to sell. And if they do sell, they're going to want to put it on the MLS and get top dollar, right? It's not an investable mm -hmm. property, but there are life events that happen and death, divorce, job loss, job transfer, downsizing, all these things, the market has nothing to do with those. If, you know, God forbid somebody gets divorced or they lose a spouse, that had nothing to do with the market. It's just what happened. And so they need to sell their house. The reality is right now, there are more people, I can't remember the stat, it was like 60 or 70% of people in the country have mortgages under 3% or under 4%. So if they want to sell, if anything happens in their life that makes them need to sell, 
There are so many people with equity in their house and a super low interest rate. You can take over the mortgage. You can do a subject to, or, you know, there's creative financing ways to find deals. Like when people say they can't find deals, I just want to rip my hair out. I can't hear it anymore. I'm sick of hearing it. It's so not true. Maybe you haven't been able to find deals, but just at least admit you haven't tried everything and you don't know everything. And there are ways to find deals if you're willing to open your mind and look for help for people who do know how to get deals. I know people like our friend, Andy McFarlane, right? And he started his business in like 2004. So he's kind of been through all the markets and all the interest rates and everything in between. And his business year after year just keeps growing, growing, maybe a few years where it stays about the same and then it grows, maybe, and then it grows. He's not, he's never crashed. There's no market that crashes him. Why? Because he's a smart guy and he understands that sometimes you have to move with the cheese, so to speak. You have to, where are the opportunities in this market? And then go there. Don't keep going where the opportunities were three years ago. They might not be there anymore. Or the person who three years ago was the last time he did a deal and he's telling you what to do, like, don't listen. You got to listen to people who are currently getting deals. How are they doing it? Yeah. But also what you and Andy have in common, you have a way of connecting with people you speak with. And I know because that's how I started my journey in real estate. I was answering the phones, qualifying leads. And I was uh, on the phone when COVID hit. So there was a lot of um, uh, worry about how is this going to affect the real estate market? Are we all going to lose our jobs? You know, there was talks within our company. We did very well during COVID because like you said, life doesn't stop. Life happens. Uh, Situations happen, tax delinquencies, divorce, probates, and and so on and so forth. And I spoke with people on the phone who... um, had such a lot of pain that they just didn't want to go into that house because it would remind them of a person who used to live there. There's so much pain in in people. And like you said, it doesn't matter about the market. But if you sit down and talk to people and just connect human to human and and understand how you can genuinely help them, you will find those deals. I completely agree with you. But also you need to target those lists, right? Because I feel like a lot of people are casting too wide of a net and they just hope for miracles to happen without putting too much thought into where my avatar resides because like you said if the house is in great shape especially now with these interest rates they would say hey i mean my interest rate is under three percent if i were to sell it to you i need to buy another house why would i buy at a higher interest rate right so when you cast a wider net or you have thousands of leads to call or in your pipeline doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be successful could you walk us through a little bit about how you go about your list like who are you how are you targeting them or maybe if you want to add something i felt like you wanted to add something to this no not really I, I but i do think there is a there's a real risk you said it but i want to just agree with you on this there's a real risk of trying too many marketing channels and you know i've been doing this now at a high level right i told you like for until about 2014 i was flipping you know a house a month ish on average which is okay but i started doing 100 deals a year around 2014 15 and even someone who needs 100 plus deals a year i still only do three marketing channels i don't do <laughs> five or eight or ten because all of them would would not succeed and i would probably not be putting enough time and energy and money into any one thing for it to succeed really well. And so I think that's super important. That's I think it's one of the biggest people make mistakes is they'll say, I have some money to spend. I have $2,000. And then they go, I'm going to spend $500 here and $150 here and $700 here. And it's like, none of them are going to work because you're not really committing enough to anything. And so you waste $2,000 a month where $2,000 used strategically with focus can get you somewhere potentially. What marketing channels are you using? So right now we do PPC. That's our best channel right now. PPC is the best one. And if you're listening and don't know what that means, it's just Google AdWords. When you Google something, the top four or five results are usually an ad. Somebody paid for that. That's where we are. Um, We use direct mail and we do radio ads. And radio is kind of new for us. We did a lot of stuff over the years since 2015. Radio we've been doing for about a year and a half now. And it's going really well. I mean, we kind of learned how to do it from somebody else, like somebody who was already kind of doing it well in another state. They told us how to do it. And then we were doing okay. And then we hired someone to work for us as a COO. She came in to kind of run the operations. And she had a pretty good extensive background in radio. Like, not in radio. She was a real estate investor. She was an an ops person for somebody else who was a real estate investor. But that person who she worked for last did a lot of radio. And so she had a lot of experience Mm -hmm. negotiating with radio stations and making sure that our ads are making us money. So we brought her in and we went from doing okay to doing really well with, with radio. So that's a big one. 
going for us now. Those are the big three. And we're not really even looking too much at anything else because there's a lot more we could do here, you know? So three channels, I think, is about right for most people to top out maybe four. But I think if you do more than four, you're just kind of like grasping. You're not really 100%, you know, like committed to, to it at that point. You're, you're just getting too spread out. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very good. You, I know you also uh, coach real estate investors, right? I'm not, I'm not sure if you still do this, but I know you're a mentor, you yep. coach. And you already yeah, yeah. mentioned a couple of mistakes that people make. Let's say too many marketing channels, waiting for this perfect moment to just go ahead and start. What other things do you see that maybe a common traits from beginner entrepreneurs? Yeah, thank you. I do coach. I'm still an owner and heavily involved in the seven-figure flipping group. Obviously, it's how we met. Mm -hmm. I do some coaching on my own, some private coaching and smaller smaller scales, one-on-one -on -one and in small groups. But the mistakes that I see, the common, I mean, here's the truth, Val. This isn't what people say on podcasts a lot. And it isn't as some people kind of start rolling their eyes when I say this, but I, you know me personally. You know that I, I have personally taught hundreds, maybe thousands of people at this point. I have seen every single person come through with the reasons why they're not successful, the reasons they are successful, the things they say, the things I see. And I can tell you the number one thing that stops people from really having success, it's not having the right CRM. It's not having the right strategy for the for the, that market or, you know, learning how to, you know, but use novations, which are pretty popular right now. All those things are tools and they're great, but it all boils down to what they believe is possible and what they believe they can do. And sometimes it, it boils down to what they believe other people are actually doing. And so here's what I mean by that. I have coached and mentored many people. And there are times when I will talk to somebody, I'll hear their situation, I will offer them my advice, and I will give them the tools to be able to, to do it. And they'll run off and be super successful. And then I'll talk to somebody else who's in a very similar situation, I'll give them similar advice, and I'll give them the same tools, and they won't do anything, nothing will happen. And they will, you know, fail. And you know, you don't really fail until you die, I guess, but they will not make it happen, right? And it's not the advice, it's not the tools. It's they didn't really believe me when I told them that it would work. They didn't believe me and or they didn't believe in themselves. They didn't believe they could do it. So one or both of those things happened. They either didn't believe they could do it or they didn't believe I knew what I was talking about. That's it. Right. And so the problem is it's in here, most of it. And so, you know, we'll go to things like Flip Hacking Live or events, right? And some people will get on stage and they'll talk about the strategy they're using in their market. Maybe it's Novations, like when Adam, I think, talked about Novations this year. Adam will get up there and talk about Novations and this is how you, you can list a property on the MLS when you don't really own it and you can make a lot of money where properties, you didn't think you'd make any money, but you can make a lot of money. And everyone leans forward and they start writing and they're taking notes and they're, and they're taking pictures of the screen, right? And they're writing notes. And then the next person will get on and maybe that pre presentation is more mindset driven. And people, I know that they, they like it, but that's sometimes when they get up to go to the bathroom or they start looking on their phone or they're reviewing their notes from the last person who talked about innovations because that don't make them money. And I see this over time and it really makes me sad because the person who's up there, who's successful by the way, and they're talking a little bit more mindset based, that's the one you need to listen to the most because the strategies are going to come and go and they'll always be there. You can always learn those, but getting yourself right in your head so that you believe it and you know that the person who's trying to help you is knowledgeable and they know what they're talking about and they have the experience. Like I fight it every day. I'm sure that you do, Val. I've heard your journey. We all do. We have to fight this thing inside of us that says, eh, I don't know if you'll be able to do it. Ah, it might not work for you the way it worked for somebody else. Ah, let's put it off until next week because that sounds scary. We're all fighting that. Some people just lose that fight a lot. And some mm -hmm. people don't, right? The one thing I had going for me in 2008 when I started, it was everyone on the news and everyone in my family and all my friends were saying, this is an awful time to get into real estate. All the market is dropping. This is awful. People are losing their houses. Like, boy, you got to get away from real estate. And what helped me during that time is I don't watch the news. I haven't as an adult really ever watched the news. I don't always know what's happening. And now sometimes that makes me look kind of dumb when someone goes, Hey, did you hear what happened or what happened in the Middle East? And I'll go, No, what's gap, you know, what's going on? And then I realize, oh, this is a major world event. I didn't even know it until like I was the last person. Or whatever. The, you know, interest rates are dropping, or uh, people will say to me all the time because they know I'm real estate. What are the interest rates right now? And I'll go, I don't know. I don't pay attention because I don't buy houses and I don't flip houses even right now. So I don't really need to know the interest rates too much. And so I don't really know what's going on. And so what helped me when I 
I started was I just, what as they say that old cliche, I was blissfully ignorant. I didn't know that I should be a little bit afraid to be in real estate in 2008. Seemed like a good time. It was the time when I finally got my courage up. And when my courage was up, that was the time I had to do it, no matter what the what the industry was like. And so people ask me all the time, I'm sure they ask you, is now a good time to get into real estate? Yeah, if you're ready to go and you have the, the confidence and the conviction that you need to do this, now is the best time to get into real estate because the interest rates may go down and the prices may go up or down, but you may not be as convicted anymore. You may have moved on and, and something else caught your attention, right? Like I'll tell you something that I know I'm talking a lot, so I, will, I promise I'll stop in a minute. But one thing that I talk about a lot that not a lot of people have heard. I've said it on stage before, but not a lot of people have heard it. And I think it's it's super, super powerful. It's called the law of diminishing intent. The law of diminishing intent says, if you don't do, if you are moved and you're inspired to do something by somebody else or by yourself, or you read something or heard something and you're inspired every minute, every day, every week that goes by where you don't do it, you are less and less convicted. Your intention to do that goes lower and lower and lower. And that's what happens. Here's what happens. I know this because it's in my own family. I've had this happen to my brother. They'll say, let's just use exercise for a minute. Let's just get out of real estate for a second. I want to start exercising and I want to I want to lose weight. And somebody says that right now on November 10th. And they go, well, okay, but hold on. Thanksgiving's coming. I'm going to eat a lot. And then Christmas is coming and I'm going to be going to all people's houses all the time. <sighs> start in January. In January, the intention it may be a lot less and it may be more, but that's why people do it in January. You know, January, New Year's resolutions, I'm going to lose weight and they join the gym. And by March, they're not going to the gym. You know why? They weren't really moved to do it in January, but January felt like the time they're supposed to do that and they don't stick with it. So I personally started working out a year ago, almost exactly like a week ago. It was my one year that I started working out. Who the heck starts working out at the end of October, beginning of November? It's, it's the worst time in the world, like because Thanksgiving and Christmas and all this, the winter time and it's just everyone feels and it's dark out and all that that's when i started because that's when i was like said doggone it i'm doing it like i'm i've hit rock i'm doing it right i'm gonna do it if i would have waited till january guarantee i wouldn't have done it i would not have started because i would have been like i don't feel like it i'm fat i ate for the last three weeks i'm not gonna i don't feel like doing it anymore right so you have to do things when you want to do them or when you're moved to do them and listen education is great i think everyone should get some level of education before they take the plunge into real estate but education is a double-edged sword. It's great to keep you out of trouble in the beginning, but too much of it can make you nervous about every single little possible thing that could go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. There needs to be a slight amount of ignorance when you start something new because, you know, I mean, you start driving, you don't really think about the fact you could crash into other cars and die. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you're just trying to learn how to drive. You know, you don't need to see all the statistics and all these videos of people crashing and burning. Like it's just too much. You don't need all that. You just need to know how to do it right. Right. So anyways, I promise that's not talking. So no, that's, that's sort of my thing. People just they don't believe. That's a very great analogy <laughs> with with driving. Like you, you just have a goal. You want to learn how to drive. You don't need to have all the statistics of like that's a very, very good analogy. Mindset is very important. And I see this not just in real estate, but I also see this with any entrepreneurs, even in my people who work with us, we hire, we train virtual assistants. And a lot of people come and say, well, what if it's not going to work out? What if, what if, what if this? And they are so, they have so much going on in their lives. They have so many tasks, but they're so afraid to delegate to other people, which I completely, I understand them. But at the same time, I say like, you'll always be in this position unless you begin to trust others. It, it's all in the mindset. And in fact, earlier this week, I recorded a podcast episode with a real estate agent who got a VA from us and she's very, very happy with, with the results. And she said one thing, She's like, I just feel so sorry for the people she worked with before and they let her go because they didn't realize what a good employee she is. And I was like, well, she's the same person. She has the same skills, uh, the same level of dedication. What is the difference then? Why did she work out for some employers and didn't work for other employers? And the difference is in the mindset, in, in the way you approach it. It's the way you, you know, um, the way you nurture the team, the way you approach it, but also just her mindset. I had such a good conversation with her. Her mindset is exactly where it needs to be. She's like very open, very uh, transparent about this. And it's kind of the same thing. Like we said, the same strategies. Why do they work for somebody and they don't work for someone else? It's not the strategist's fault. It's not your advice fault. It's not even, some people say, well, it's not gonna work in my market. I don't think it's even your market. That's not the fault. What you do with this information, how you apply it to your life and to your business. Yep, 100%. It's, it's, it really does boil down to that. I think it was Henry Ford said this quote, I, I don't know, but somebody, I think it was Henry Ford said, if you think that you can't, you're right.
That's true. That's it. If you just yeah. if you just already don't think you can do it, if you have all these doubts, like it's it's a good chance it'll fail. You, you can't go into things that way. Yeah, and that actually brings me to this uh, next topic. I think you you wrote a book about mindset called Level Jumping. And uh, could you I mean, what prompted you to write this book, and uh, why did you think it was an important message to share with with the world? Well, as we said, you and I know each other through, through seven figure flipping. We go to events and, and I've spoken at events. And sometimes when I speak in an event, I'll show a slide that shows the financial trajectory of my business from the time I started in 2008 until now. And that trajectory kind of goes like this. And then there's a little bump a little bit, you know, 2011, 2012. It's like kind of going up, but sort of staying the same. But then in 2015, it does this. It goes almost Ooh. straight up. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I go from like, you know, making 150, 200,000 in my business to making over a million. And it happened in one year, like a short time frame. And there's a story behind that. But essentially, you asked me why I, why I wrote the book. I would go to these, I would have these presentations. And then people would always ask, like, what happened right there? Where it went straight up. Like, I don't care about everything else, right? That was fine. It was all interesting. But I really care what you did to, to make this thing go straight up financially. And so that's why I wrote the book. My book, Level Jumping, is not about how to start in real estate. It's really written for people who already have a small business. They kind of have a little bit of traction. They're doing doing some deals, but they just can't figure out how to get out of that solopreneur kind of a mode. They just mm-hmm. don't understand how to take it from I'm doing a couple of deals here and there to I'm doing 10 a month every single month. That's why I wrote the book to tell how I got from just doing a few deals to doing like 10 deals a month. So yeah, and it talks about among other things, it talks about hiring because I think if I were to grab all the people I know, put them in a room who are successful in real estate or any, any business, honestly, but mm-hmm. I know mostly real estate investors. And I put them in a room and I ask them to be honest with me and tell me what is the reason why they were able to scale successfully and how they have a good life balance. They, they're not just a slave to their job and they, they have can enjoy their family and go on vacations and, and things. Why are you able to do all that and why are you so successful? And I would bet you nine out of 10 or maybe 10 out of 10 people would say it's my people. It's the people I've hired that have allowed me to do it. It's not the the processes and the systems. Those support the people. That's great. People need that stuff. But you hire, you make two or three bad hires and your business isn't going anywhere. You make one really great hire and your business can really take off. The reality is in 2015, you know, I wrote the book. There's a lot of things in there that I did and, and the reasons why I was able to have that success in a short amount of time. One of them is we joined a mastermind and that certainly seven figure flipping. And I got to meet Andy and all these other folks that were great. But I also, right before I joined that mastermind, I hired a salesperson mm-hmm. who was excellent and I'm not an excellent salesperson. I'm a mediocre salesperson. I can get the job done, but not great. And so when I hired him, I went from doing like a deal a month or a deal every other month to doing two or three a month. Like just that one hire double and almost tripled my business overnight. Like that's the power of hiring the right people, right? Then I hired him and I hired someone to answer my phones and I hired someone to do this and that. And I got lucky for a while with some hires and it really allowed me to take off. And then I joined the the group and I, I understood how to arrange all these talented people and how to create the processes around it and the exact strategies that were working at the time and, and my business exploded. And I literally went to a million dollars in 12 months. Like it was just went that fast. It was actually less than 12 months, but it was within a 12 month period and it just exploded. And it was because of who I surrounded myself with and it was who I hired. That's two things. Amazing. Those are the two biggest things by far. That's amazing. What are you looking for in the people that you hire? It's different than it used to be. I can tell you that. I used to hire people off based off their resume only. I didn't have any other thing to measure. And that's why I thought that mattered. And so consequently, I brought a few people into my company who were highly qualified. According to their resume and their background, their experience, they were highly qualified. But they ended up not working out. And they ended up being a really, really bad experience because of two things that I have since implemented into my hiring strategy. Number one, a tool that I use. It's called Culture Index. I know you use it too. Mm -hmm. I believe that personality assessments in general and specifically the Culture Index are absolutely vital Mm -hmm. in your your hiring process. If you don't do it, you know, a lot of us can be good enough actors and actresses to go into an interview and come off however we think we're supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. I can pretend, and I've done it in my 50s now, right? I I have in my past, you know, Mm -hmm. careers, I have gone into interviews and played the role of the job that I was trying to get, and I did it successfully. And so if folks had given me the culture index survey before they hired me, there's jobs I wouldn't have gotten because while 
maybe I was smart enough to do them. It wasn't really what I was built to do. Mm -hmm. And so I had to struggle to do it. All right. And so the culture index is the tool. The other thing that I put a much bigger emphasis, it's a little bit more abstract, but I put a ton of emphasis on values. I want to make sure that the person I hire has the same values. Now, it's tricky because you can't say what are your, I mean, I guess you can say what are your values, but you have to be kind of careful. You start asking questions about values. You could start getting into some gray areas in terms of hiring and what's allowed and what's not. But I put people in scenarios and I ask them to tell me what they would do or how they would handle it. Or here's a good one. Like if somebody just wants an easy question to find out if this person could be potentially a toxic in your work environment and people jump on this and they don't understand why they're being asked, all I do is simply say, tell me about the absolute worst boss you've ever had. And if they are the kind of person that is sort of toxic and loves to talk bad about their boss, their eyes will light up, they'll get a big smile, and they'll say something like, let me tell you, and they'll start going. And they don't realize they're hanging themselves because I know I will just be the next worst boss someday. You know, they're going to have a problem with me too. They shouldn't get that excited and have examples on the tip of their tongue about people they hate that they worked for. So if I hear that, it's kind of a killer. It's probably not going to hire that person. Or I'll say, you know, tell me about a time where you worked in a collaborative environment with a team or, you know, collaborated and something went horribly wrong and you got blamed, but it wasn't at all your fault, right? The right answer is never, of course, it's always a little bit their fault. If they're in the team, they could have and should have, right? It goes back to the Jocko Willink extreme ownership book, right? They need to take ownership. So I want to hear, yeah, this happened and and I I wasn't the only one on the team, but listen, I should have saw this. I could have done that. I take responsibility. I'm on the team. I don't point fingers. Like that's what you want to hear. Of course, we've all been in a situation situation where we've taken some blame for something that really wasn't our fault, but that's not how you want them to answer that or, or view that situation. So those are just things I do to find out maybe their values a little bit and how quick and excited they are to blame and point fingers and that kind of thing. So I just won't, you know, it's the end of the interview, really. I might politely finish, but I'm not going to hire that person. So yeah, that's very similar to what we do as well. We look at uh, personality profiles. We look at values as well, <laughs> ask them questions to determine those values. Because if you ask somebody, do you have integrity? Of course, they will say yes but how do you test that how do you know that for sure and also another thing we do is we give them a a little test a little skill assessment on the spot so let's say we hire someone to do social media i will just show an instagram page and say tell me everything you you can tell me about this page like i don't care about the resume i'm with you 100 like people lie in their resumes people present themselves so well at interviews we hired video editors who presented the most amazing portfolios ever and then when we gave them a little task it wasn't even 10 percent of what we show what we saw you know so We just put them to a little test, like, okay, if if you hire a cold caller, let's have a role play. I'm going to be the homeowner. You call me. I'm going to give you tough objections because I want to see how you handle being uncomfortable. And uh, whatever position you're hiring for, just put them in in the hot seat because not only will you see what they can do for you, but also how they react to that, how they react being uncomfortable and being put on the spot, you know, because... That that's gonna show you the true true nature of people. So I love that you said that. What are your core values specifically? Yeah. So me personally, I'm a I'm man. I'm so big on on extreme ownership. Like the whole Jocko Welling thing. Like I, I mean, I met him. I had a chance to meet him. I think you did too. I think if everyone made that their one value, we would all be better off, right? Because I think a lot of what happens in business and in the society is just blah blame. A lot of people not taking responsibility. It's funny. I have one in my business that's. I've never heard anybody else say before, but it's is no apologies. Like I cringe and it makes me physically uncomfortable when people apologize to me. I hate it. And I have a theory that if you apologize to somebody, it's a little bit of a selfish gesture because it makes you feel better to unburden yourself with the apology, but it puts that burden and uncomfortableness on the other person. Now they have to deal with that. And so I tell people in my company, never apologize to me for making a mistake. Say you're going to fix it and tell me how you're going to fix it and how it's not going to happen again. But please don't apologize because when you apologize, I feel bad. Now I have to feel bad that you did that, right? So I do no apologies in my business and obviously integrity. And I've heard this recently, this saying, and I hope I don't butcher it. And I loved it. And it goes really well with how I feel about business and and core values. Competency is what you do when there's something to gain. Character is what you do when there's nothing to gain. And so I want people who have good character, people who do the right things, even though it doesn't benefit them. And so an example of that is, this is maybe something where it's even more powerful. So I had the guy that I told you I hired, my sales guy, the first sales guy. He 
was phenomenal. He's great sales. He never had done real estate sales, but he was good at sales. And he was just a killer. He's a killer. He just, he's really good. And so when he would go into houses before he was really, really comfortable, I went on a few appointments with him, but then he was better than me anyway. So I just let him go. But I would give him a number and I would just say, hey, Mike, his name's Mike too, but I'd say, hey, Mike, you can't spend more than, let's just say $100,000. That's the maximum we can offer this person under any circumstances. But I obviously want you to get as low as you can. 100 is just the highest. Like, don't get it at 100. Try to get it lower than that, but 100 is the most. And so he went in a house one time where the number I think was 100 or 90, somewhere in there. And he was talking to me in, in the driveway. He excused himself from the appointment and called me because he didn't know what to do. He said, here's the situation. I'm in this house. It's an elderly lady. She's got all of her senses. She's not like, you know, um, having any trouble cognitively. She's smart, but she doesn't have a husband. He's passed away. She doesn't have any family. She's all by herself, all alone. She wants to sell her house. She told me she would be happy if she got $20,000. We know it's worth waiting. Like that's too low, right? I mean, we could spend up to a hundred. We were honestly, we were hoping to be in the $80,000 range would be really good for us. He goes, what do you want me to do? I could get this thing for $20,000. I said, listen, you could, and we would make a lot of money on this house, but you have to get up every morning and look at yourself in the mirror and not hate the person you see looking back and not lose respect for them. You've got kids that you want to respect you and think that you're a good person. Like we have an obligation to our company to make as much money as we can, but we also have an obligation to be good people and to try to, this lady has no one. She trusts you. And so we got to do what's right. And we ended up, I don't know, giving her something in there, seventy or $80,000, right? And she was over the moon, couldn't believe it. We still made good money on it. Like it was a win-win situation. But the person who says, I and I asked that question in my interview with salespeople now, if you had the scenario, you know, we're trying to make as much money as we can. You know, this old lady has nobody, she trusts you. What do you do? How much do you give her? And I've had people say, I'd give her a hundred thousand. And honestly, that's not the right answer either because you're still in sales and you're still trying to, you know, make money here. I've never had anybody say I would, I would just give her 20 grand and let her be happy. I mean, I would never hire that person, obviously, but I asked the question specifically because the closer they get to 20, the farther they are from being the right person, right? Interesting. It's like, yeah. there's a, there's a medium, there's a happy medium in there where you're a good salesperson and you're a good person and we can be both. And so those are the kind of things that I talk about in my company. This is a, this shows integrity, like doing the right thing, even when no one is watching. Because when people say I have integrity and it, when they're on stage, they can always do the right thing. But when no one is watching, that's the true test of, of integrity. This is yep. beautiful. Yeah. People who will do the right thing, even when there is no benefit. And honestly, sometimes when they'll do the right thing, when it actually hurts them a little bit to do it, you know, like a salesperson is going to get less commission. If he offers this lady more, his commission suffers, right? But yeah. if he's willing to do that, then like he sort of wins long-term and not just in that moment, right? You can win one transaction, but you're kind of a crappy person. So then you got to deal with that. Yeah. This is a very important lesson. I, I remember when we hired sales reps, we, we didn't give this kind of scenario, but I think it would have helped us find not better salespeople, but people who think differently. And we use different questions, but this is a very good one. I want to keep it in mind. And I want to coach my team on how to ask something similar when we hire virtual assistants for our clients as well. I loved it. So you have, so let's see, your core values are extreme ownership, integrity, right? Coachability, probably, I'm guessing, because I, I know you mentioned that before. What do you say when you have a person who, let's say, uh, we have a virtual assistant who said, I don't need to be trained in sales. I've been doing sales for 10 years. Whatever, some people, I don't need to read books or, you know, watch gurus because I know what I'm doing. And then uh, we have a role play and it is not even close to what, what we're looking for. That was a lesson learned yeah. for me because coachability is, is one of our core values. You have to improve personally, professionally, you have to be better. Are you seeing this kind of ego with people who say, I don't need anything? Or is that different here in the States? Or are you, are you even targeting people like that? Is it what, what do you see? No, we, I, I literally, we just hired a salesperson in my company, like a in-person local salesperson. And I told my team, I have a partner in my business, by the way. I'm not like, mm -hmm. I, I, there's two owners, right? Me and another person. So I told my partner who brought this guy in and, and we did hire him. But I said, my only concern with him was he seems to think he already knows everything he needs to know about sales. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me. And so we got to watch that. This guy, if, you know, if he's not coachable, He's not going to work out. And so we have to really, really watch that closely. And so far, so good. So I think he was, he didn't say I know everything about sales, but I think because like we talked about earlier, he came into the interview with me. It was an in-person interview and he was trying to exude confidence that he was confident in himself 
And to me, it came across as uncoachable. But I, I think he was just trying to act so confident that it, it was maybe too much, right? And then since yeah. he's been in, he's dove in, into our, our all of our trainings and all that. Like he's devouring it and saying he loves it. So I, I think it's fine. It's just that interview can be misleading. Sometimes people are, they you think they're exactly what you want and they're just pretending or they are what you want. And, but they're trying to be what they think they're supposed to be. And it's yes. not as good as what they really are. And I think that that's what happened in that. Yeah, they want to put their best foot forward. I actually interviewed someone for my company earlier today. And I liked everything about this guy. I liked how also for the sales position. The only one thing I didn't like is when I asked, what books are you reading? Or have you read about sales? He said none. And to me, this is like, um, you know, that's a deal breaker. Like not even one, not now, but ever. Like you're not, you, you don't know any sales books. I, I just can't put you in that position. But I really liked him. Otherwise, you know, he talked the talk. He has an impressive resume. This is such an important core value for me that it's, it's just a deal killer at this point. So I'm yeah. a little disappointed, but I know yeah. that the right person is out there. So I just got to look for him or Definitely. her. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, speaking of books, what are some of your favorite books that maybe shaped you personally or your business? Yeah. So again, I've mentioned it a, a bunch, but I think it should be required reading is um, Jocko Willink's Extreme Ownership. I think that's just amazing. Absolutely. It's a great book. Yeah. There's so many good books out there. I mean, Traction has had a huge effect on my business and me, just the way I organize my business and how I kind of think about structuring things. It's such a simple way. Profit First, oh, uh, yeah. that one should be required reading for all business people. Profit First is such a good book and it really, I mean, if you ever feel like in your business that you're nervous, you're going to lose track of financing and you're going to end up owing money that you don't have or like all these things that you worry about, you know, my bills would be more than my income, like read profit first and it will absolutely put you in a safe place with your business. So that's a good one. And then the last one is probably it's lesser known. Those are some of those ones I just mentioned are pretty common. There's another book I read uh, a few years ago now called per procrastinate on purpose. And I read it because I'm a huge procrastinator. And it's not exclusively about procrastinating, but one of the concepts in there that I really loved because it articulated it really well was this idea of making sure that you're not always focused on the fires that are happening in your business. In other words, every day, every week, there's things that happen that we just have to give them our attention because they're very important and they're like, they're happening right now and you can't ignore it, right? And those are like the fires that are happening. But you have to set, you have to have time to work on things that are significant, meaning making that really good hire. Because when you make them, yeah, it's gonna cause you a lot of work in the beginning. You have to train them and get them acclimated, right? But that's significant because it pays dividends long-term, right? It can take a lot of work off your plate. And so if you're always like the person who goes, well, I'm not going to hire an assistant because I don't have time to train them. And so you end up on this rat, this, this hamster wheel of like trying to do all these jobs and the assistant's job, you're trying to do that one and you're trying to do yours and you're like, I don't have time. But if you don't make time, you'll always be doing all those things and running around like crazy and you'll never be focused on long vision for your company. And so you bring that person in and then that takes off a huge chunk of your day. Now you can use that time to have vision for your company or you can look for the next position that is taking up a lot of your time and bring that. So those are like the significant projects that you have to work on in addition to, oh, our website's down, right? You can't put that off. You got to do the website thing because it's, it's part of your, mm -hmm. it's how you make money, but you can't just always be working on things that are right in front of your face. You have to think about what are, what are the significant tasks that will long-term have a huge multiple impact on my business. So that was, and that book really talked about a lot about that. And it was really interesting. So true. And when you train a person, eventually they will be able to put out the fires for you. I say that I'm training my team to be firefighters. There are some fires that I need to be yeah. involved in, but right now there are some things that I, like some departments in my company where I'm, I'm not involved because I completely trust my team to take care of that they've proven that they can take care of that and it's all virtual assistants and they act as firefighters if there's a fire they usually include this in the weekly report for me to just be aware of that but they say we have been taken you know that's been taken care of so it's so freeing knowing that you have this team in, in your corner and that you have this time to focus on bigger things otherwise I wouldn't be I wouldn't have yeah. had this time to um, to meet with you today and, and have this because I would all be busy you know putting out fires and that's not what you want to do as, as a business owner so trust the team a couple more Question. So one more question. Do you think mentorship is important or should people go through these uh, mistakes by themselves and learn the hard way? Or do you think it's, it's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, the way you phrased it, it makes the answer pretty obvious. Uh, <laughs> mentorship is very important. Listen, I spent six years, literally six years. I spent banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out 
what to do to grow my business effectively and profitably. And I wasn't figuring it out. I mean, I was working a full-time job part of that time, but I wasn't figuring it out on my own. You just, knowledge isn't all intuitive. In other words, okay, like use a doctor for an example. Somebody can't just want to be a doctor so bad that they just kind of figure out how to do surgery, right? Somebody has to show you who's done it before, who knows what they're doing, or you're going to kill a lot of people doing really bad surgeries, right? Real estate's no different. Nothing is different. Yeah, you can sort of figure out how to do real estate on your own without any help. And you might get lucky and you might just figure it out. But I, I guarantee you some of that luck is going to be making mistakes that you learn from and you get better. And so you can decide, do you want to be on the slow track to learning, meaning decades? Or do you want to be on the fast track, meaning months or a couple of years to really dial it in and get where you want to go? It's just, you know, if you stand on someone's shoulders, you could just see so much farther than you can all by yourself. I stood on people's shoulders. I had to. I tried for six years and I was having success, but not what I wanted. And it wasn't allowing me to have the kind of life that I want to have. It wasn't until I stood on Andy's shoulders and said, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And look at my business. What am I doing that I should be doing differently or better? And he just told me it was very simple for him because he'd already done it. He had seen my business. He had seen it about five years ago in his own business. He had already seen it and he knew what he did. It's like my car breaks down and I fix it and your car breaks down the exact same way, Val. It's pretty easy for me to tell you how to fix it, right? And that's all he did was tell me what to do. And then I was coachable, right? That core value you talked about. I was coachable. I didn't tell him I already knew what I was doing because I had already done deals. Or I didn't tell him it wouldn't work in my market because he's in Utah and I'm in Michigan. I just executed. I did what he said. And Mm -hmm. guess what? When you do what someone tells you to do, who knows what they're talking about, good things happen. And I was able to get to a million dollars in a year because I listened to somebody and I was coachable and I didn't make excuses and I just executed like crazy. That was it. I mean, that's that's exactly how I did it. One of my, my favorite things about Americans and about being here in the States, you know, I'm not from the States originally. I was uh, born in Eastern Europe. But one of the things that surprised me the most and what I, I don't think I've seen it anywhere else is how willingly people share what got them to the success they have. This is, if people who are listening to us are born in the U.S., you might not even be aware that this is such a um, privilege to be here. Just just th- this access. Like, I can go up to you and say, hey, Mike, I love what you're doing. Tell me what you're doing and I'll do what I'll do exactly what you tell me to. And you will share a couple of good advice. You will share some so you, your path to success. I can go to anyone and say, what are you doing? How are you doing this? I want to do the same. Where I'm from and maybe from uh, another European countries, I just don't see this happening. I think people close their cards closer to the chest. I just can't imagine, especially in my country, going to a successful person and say, hey, could you do me a favor? Tell me what you're doing. They'll be like, no. Like, why would I give away my secrets. So if people who are listening here are in the US and if you're still uh, on the fence, whether or not you should start a business or not, or just take that action, know that you're in a such a much more favorable position than anyone else in the world because you can literally go up to anyone and ask. And I love what you said about mentorship because maybe it's just me, but I have a big FOMO. I mean, we have what, 80, 90, 100 years to live on this planet, right? 100 in the best case scenario. I don't have a whole decade to spend and figure out things on my own. Sure, I'll grow as a person. I'll grow internally. It'll be a good internal journey. But why, if I can minimize this and go with someone who has already done it? I have a big FOMO case, like this big urgency. So... And it's okay if you fall fall flat. You will learn from this. But if you go together with someone, the chances of you failing is lower, I think. So that's my... (laughs) Here's the the reality. If you have a mentor and they tell you and they help you and they give you advice and tell you what to do, you're still going to make some mistakes. There's there's very few people I've ever talked to who said I got from where I I was to where I want to be with zero mistakes, right? But it's like, how many do you want to make? Do you want to make hundreds of mistakes or just a couple of mistakes? Like you will make mistakes. Don't worry. If, you, if you're like, well, mistakes help me grow and a better character and I learn from my mistakes. That's great, man. That's great. But you don't have to make so many. Like make a lot less. Go to somebody who knows what they're talking about. What they tell you to do will work. But you will still make mistakes. Don't worry. You'll make mistakes. We all do. You just have to learn from them and move on. But I don't want to make 100 mistakes. I'd rather make 10 mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right? Not 100. That sounds horrible, right? And you make 100 mistakes, most people, the reason why everyone isn't a successful entrepreneur who wants to be, but not everybody wants to be. I understand that. But of the people who do, do you know why not all of them do and most of them don't? It's because they go down the path of making 100 mistakes. And after about 20 or 30, they go, this is enough for me. I'm, I'm out. I can't afford any more mistakes. I've lost money. I've lost relationships. I've looked stupid to my friends. I, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing it. But if they had had a mentor and maybe instead of making 20 mistakes, they would have made 10 
and they would have gotten there. And 10 was, they could deal with 10. 10 isn't a deal breaker, but 20 was a deal breaker. Mm. You don't have to get to 20 unless you go down the path of, I'll just figure it out on my own and somehow magically I'll get this. Like you may or may not, you probably won't, you know, for most people, it's hard. It's hard to do it on your own. There's nothing, there's not, especially like you said, in America, I've never lived anywhere else. Thank goodness for me, right? It's, I'm lucky. I've never been in a world where I didn't have somebody who was willing to help me if I asked and if I executed, right? Mm. I teach people all the time. If someone comes to me and asks me what they should do and they say I need help and I give them my time and energy and knowledge and help them and they don't do it and they come to me again, I'm not as excited to help them anymore. I'm just not. You know, that's the one That's the one payment that most people yep. who offer advice, whether it's paid or, f or free, the one payment they want is they want you to actually do it. That makes us feel like it was a worthwhile for us to talk to you. But if you ask me what to do and I tell you and you come back to me in six months and ask me what to do, the exact same problem, what to do, and you didn't do it the first time, I'll be nice. I may tell you again, but I will start avoiding you at that point. I don't want to answer your question a third time. I, I, if you didn't try, and if you come right. back and say, I tried what you said, here's what happened. All right, let's problem solve. I'm in. I'll do it. I'll spend all the time you want. But if you ask me the same things over and over and over again, and you never take my advice, you're just wasting my time, you're wasting your time too, frankly. But Absolutely. I, I love the, everything about this conversation. I know we could uh, go for hours and talk about this because the, the mindset is important. Let's see, we talked about mindset. We talked about team. We talked about interview questions. We talked about, there's so much that we covered. And um, I know you have, uh, you know, my company hires and trains virtual assistants. You have some virtual assistants in your company as well, right? If those who are listening, if you don't know what to delegate to virtual assistants, I will leave here a file, a hundred plus tasks you can delegate to a VA. Use that for your inspiration. See what tasks your, you can delegate tasks for as little as $5 an hour and go through that list. And if you see some things that you are doing yourself, you're literally doing things that could that are worth $5 an hour. So go through that list, check it out, and we will help you find the right virtual assistants. And if you're looking to do this on your own, again, you might make mistakes, which is okay, you will learn. It all depends on what path you wanna take. Do you wanna do it on your own, learn mistakes, you'll still grow, or do you wanna do it faster and uh, grow your company, scale your company in a faster pace? In either case, go ahead and do it, just start. Like, don't, don't create more friction between you and your goal, just go ahead and do it. And last question for you, Mike, what is your legacy? What do you wanna leave behind? Yeah, you warned me about this question. This is really hard for me. You know, we talked about the culture index for a minute. And if you look at my culture index, my planning, my detail is off the charts low. Okay. So I think the legacy that I want, it's not as much financial, although I do think a lot about leaving enough for my kids that they don't have to be nervous about mm -hmm. things financially, right? Does that mean I'm going to leave them hundreds of millions? Of, no, probably not. But I want them to be at least financially secure. But more than that, I think the legacy that I want, honestly, when, when people like when my family thinks about me after I'm gone, is probably that I was a good husband and dad like that. That's really it. Because honestly, when I'm trying to figure out how to free up time, or when I'm telling people they need to hire so that they have time, I don't have hobbies like bowling or hunting or whatever. Like when I have free time, I gravitate to my kids mm. and my wife. Like I, I just want to hang out with them. So, you know, like if I died and I had a billion dollars and they said, yeah, but he was a jerk. Like that would be harder for me to deal with than if they said, yeah, he did pretty good in business. But mm. more than that, he was a great guy. Everyone loved him and he was a good dad and his kids loved him. And like, that's really what's more important to me. So it's really the way my kids, because honestly, my wife's my age, we're going to probably be gone for a while together. Right. So my kids will be left. If they think of me in a positive way, like he was awesome. He was great. He taught us a lot. We loved him. He loved us. That's all I really want. That's beautiful. That's all that matters in life. That's all that matters. matters. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. What a great conversation. Thank you so much for, for finding the time and um, for just sharing your wisdom and your path. And I think those who listen to us, I, I know I took a lot of notes from what you said. So I hope that those that listen to us also got some golden nuggets out of that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love you guys. You have a beautiful family yourself. And I love when I get to see you every couple of months. So yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a fun conversation. You're right. These things could go on. I could talk to you forever. So at some point we have to stop, but <laughs> thanks for having me. And I had a lot of fun. Thank you.